Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, today we're going to finish the final series of verses in Psalm 45. And so what that means then in light of last, last week's sermon is that now we now turn and focus on the duties of a godly wife. So in all of it, it's important for us to recognize as we're going through Psalm 45, what the idea is being conveyed to us is that uh, marriage is intended to be a very good and godly and even beautiful institution. And a marriage that functions as it should testifies to this reality all the more. Well, the reflections that the psalmist gives us on the institution of marriage, we must recognize this, by the way, they're all born out of this presupposition that God is the one who created it. God is the one who created marriage. And so by God's own design, it's a reflection of what he calls good and worthy and noble. And so again, when we see a marriage function as it should, it reflects what God calls good and worthy and noble. And this is why the people in this psalm ultimately rejoice. And yet nestled in the midst of this beautiful portrait of what I called marital bliss, we find a greater and more beautiful reality in the marriage that testifies of God's own covenant love to his people. And we touched on that last week, and I'll be touching on that again today. So what I want you to understand, though, is that this psalm, in other words, it testifies of a a beautiful relationship between a husband and a wife, and yet it testifies simultaneously of Christ's own relationship to his bride, which is the church. In this day and age, it testified to Israel's relationship with God himself. Now, this doesn't erase the immediate context of this being a royal wedding psalm. What this does, though, is it serves to show us that the more a marriage reflects God's relationship to his bride, the more that marriage ultimately will flourish, the more that marriage will ultimately be a thing of praise to the people. Now, it also teaches us that by implicit reality, marriage is the norm. Now, what I mean for that is simple, that when we look to the biblical teaching on marriage, what's anticipated for men and women is that they enter into the marriage covenant. That's just the reality of what it says here. Now, this used to be an uncontroversial topic in our world, but especially within the church. And yet in today's day and age, that's not exactly uncontroversial, is it? Or uncontroversial. The institution of marriage is often looked at incorrectly. It's often looked at as, you know, the, your wife is your old ball and chain or the husband is the bumbling idiot caught in the blinds. But the reality is that this is actually what is the norm, and it's a beautiful thing. This is how Scripture depicts it. In our 21st century American context, we also miss the boat because we define marriage to be primarily on terms of romantic love. Now, that's not saying that marriage should not have romance, but it is saying that we have, in a way of I put it, or however I want to put it, is that we've We've Disneyfied marriage. We've made it to be like a Disney movie. We've set unbiblical expectations on what it's supposed to look like and even what our respective roles are supposed to be. But contrary to popular opinion, what happens is that in a godly marriage, our distinctions as men and women actually come to the forefront. They come to the forefront and come to full focus in the marriage covenant, and this is by design. 
beloved. It's only when we subvert the biblical expectations in a marriage we find ourselves truly in a world of pain and often live with much regret over life. Now, to put that even more clearly, it's when we forsake our God-given roles in our marriage or our spouse forsakes their role in our marriage that we find an endless amount of turmoil. That's what it always boils down to in the end. Well, what the psalmist paints for us is a picture of marriage that not only lifts up these distinctions and these distinct roles that we have as men and women, but it actually shows us that marriage is ultimately, profoundly beautiful and lovely in every single way when we actually submit ourselves to God's design. Now, if you recall from last week, the king was called to exude grace from every fiber of his being, and this was most uh, characterized in his speech, if he was also called to be a brave man, one who contended for the truth and for meekness and for righteousness, he was also to rule in authority, but also specifically for the cause of justice and righteousness. And lastly, he was to cherish his wife at his right hand. She, she was elevated, in other words, to a position of no other. In every aspect, we can simply summarize that as a man is supposed to lead, but he's supposed to lead in a very specific way and a good and godly way. This king was tasked as God's representative on earth for Israel at this time, and yet his duties in all of this extended to his marriage. And so inasmuch as the king reflected this design and faithfulness to his duties, he would reflect God in his marriage. Now, as we look to the queen today, we see there's just this, there's another aspect or portrait of marital bliss, but this time with respect to how she comes under his headship. The reality that this is born out of is that she joins in one flesh with him, and that's why. Now, if you'll notice, the duties of a wife all surround just this one element here. It's what the New Testament would call submission. Now, often in our world, we, we, even in the church, we actually hear that word, and it's the dirty S word, isn't it? Submission is painted as a very ugly thing, and it's an unbiblical thing in many places, but the reality is this, this is just how the Bible speaks of it. But here, I want you to notice especially that this psalm is all focused on the beauty of this. It's not merely just that these are her duties, but this is what makes something lovely. When we look at the wife's role, especially as the queen is portrayed here, it becomes a thing of beauty because it reflects the relationship that God's people have with God. So the husband reflected God's relationship to his church or God's relationship to his bride of Israel. The wife reflects the opposite of this. Inasmuch as the queen of this psalm reflects a faithful wife who follows her husband, she reflects the nation of Israel here in union with their God. And in the same way with us in the New Testament, she reflects the beauty of the church as she, and I'm speaking of the church here, follows Christ and submits herself to Christ. What I want to do today is simply unfold this greater reality, especially this reality of what it means and how it looks, but that it is a beautiful thing that testifies of the gospel. So look with me now at verse 10, and we're going to see the first duty, really the primary duty of a godly wife here. She will forsake her father's house and honor her husband as Lord. That already irks some of you, and I know that. But just look at the text with me and simply hear what he says. In Psalm 45, verse 10, starting here, he says, Listen, O daughter, this is the psalmist speaking, Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. So 
Right away, I want you to notice that the psalmist is actually turning his focus towards the queen. And the reason for this is he's about to give a series of commands, but he's already given three commands here in this first basic half of the verse. All of this is reflection of how she is to enter into her marriage with the king here. There are five commands in two verses. That's how rapidly they all come. But the first three are just designed to show that the psalmist's role is really as teacher. He brings wisdom, and she is to hear his wisdom. He refers to her as his daughter. And notice he immediately takes this role, not as one who's going to beat her over the head with it, but as pastor, if you will. As spiritual father, his intent is to show that there's not only much weight or gravitas behind it, but there's an incredible amount of importance to his words. The reason is that all these are born out of this tender pastoral care for her. He really wants to actually see these things or this marriage succeed. He wants to see it flourish. He is the one who holds wisdom and the keys to a godly marriage. And as one who stands in this position, he is duty bound to give it. So in just a few short moments, her life and the life of the king is going to be radically different. I mean, radically different. All of you married folks know this, don't you? You are single, and then you get married, and all of a sudden, things just radically change. And it's all in a good way, but it's just very, very different. What he's doing here is giving final exhortations. Before all of that happens, he's saying, look, this is how you are to enter into these things because things are so radically different. Notice how he captures her with the weight of his instruction. He gives, again, three initial commands, but this is all before he even reveals her specific duties. Now, the first command he gives in the first half of verse 10 is that she is to listen. Now, the the intent of that term here is that it's not just this passive listening where she hears him, but she has the intent to obey behind it. The second is that she is to give attention to his words. And again, the idea is that she actually looks upon his words, but not with this casual gaze, if you will, but with an intense inspection. In other words, her focus deserves much more than a casual look. The third and final initial command here is that he gives her, or that he gives her, I should say, is rather that she is to incline her ear. And really what it means is to stoop or to bend her ear towards him. So he's actually saying, put yourself in a a posture, if you will, to intentionally and deliberately move towards this instruction. All three of them require action, not merely listening, but action. And so in each of these commands, what he does here is just simply garner her undivided attention. The idea is that while there may be many other voices calling out to her, many telling her what she must do within a marriage, he is the one voice that's going to stand and give wise instruction of what she must do, and she is to drown out all other voices. The psalmist is the last-ditch effort, if you will, before the marriage in which he says, heed this instruction. And the reason for this is the foundation of his counsel is what will cultivate a godly home and what will bring God honor in their marriage. That's really the the basis of it. In other words, he's saying, look, your responsibility is to function in this way. And as you do so, you will only add to the increase of your joy and you will only add to the increase of the beauty of this marriage. But especially for her as queen, she's placed in a role of prominence that no other woman in the kingdom actually has. She literally is standing out above the crowd. She represents her husband and together they are to actually embody the ideal portrait of marriage or the beautiful marriage. And the reason for this, again, is it's a reflection of God's own love for his people, Israel. In particular, though, what she reflects, again, is is the beauty of a people who are in submission to their God. 
So with these three commands, again, he's gained her attention. He's showing her these are not mere suggestions. But how well she pays attention to his teaching will either serve to build up or to tear down her husband's household. Now look with me again at verses 10 through 11 once more, and we see the final two commands given in the passage to this queen. Immediately notice the commands are done after this point. He says, starting in verse 10, forget your people and your father's house, then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. Again, notice in this short section, we already have the fi- all the commands wrapped up, but here we find them in a, in a negative sense and a positive sense, if that makes sense. So negatively, he says, to forsake your people and your father's household. It's a fairly straightforward command, but the idea is that all of her old relationships are now, in, in essence, done. It's not that she forgets them or walks away from them all, but in reality, they're just simply no longer what they once were. She's no longer part of their tribe, so to speak but she's also no longer under the headship of her father. And the simplest way I can try and put it is that as she now enters into this new relationship, those old relationships are put to a secondary level. They're no longer a place of primacy. Her submission, her trust, her loyalty, all of that now goes to her husband. The desires of her immediate family, the desires of her father, in essence, really no longer matter. They don't. He doesn't have a say in the home any longer. The one voice she now has to listen to out of everyone is her husband's, and that's what he's teaching her here. The point is that to show that, or the point is to show something radically new and different here. It's even better than what happened before, but it's all born out of this idea of covenant. As she enters into this new union and she covenants with this man, she is no longer merely a daughter, she is a wife, and that is actually a thing of profound beauty where she joins one, in one flesh with him. I mean, that's literally what it expresses, is that in that union, as far as Scripture portrays it, it is far more important now than how it used to be. She shared bonds with her family before, but now she is literally one flesh with her husband. So in between these two commands, though, notice there's this conditional statement here. He says, it is when the queen separates from her family that she will actually cultivate beauty for her husband or for her king. Now, we're going to cover this more shortly, but it goes beyond a simple external beauty. In other words, he's not saying that she gets prettier to him. If she fails to forsake her old bonds, her appearance is not going to change, right? I mean, this is just a logical statement. What he's appealing to, though, is that this internal quality that she holds, this disposition of her heart, is intimately shaped and cultivated and molded by her attachment to her husband, if that makes sense. So her loyalty and her devotion is to be to him beyond any other human relationship. And as that grows, because, guys, she's not going to do it perfectly to begin with, but as that grows, she becomes all the more lovely in his sight, even though she continues to faith just like everybody else. Now, put that even more clearly. It is literally when she forsakes these past relationships that she realizes the true union they have as husband and wife. And this is when the husband becomes all the more enraptured with her because he too sees her as an extension of his own being. He's enraptured by her character, by her demeanor, and it goes well beyond looks, which is what we so often focus on. As she places herself under his authority, his love for her grows. As his love for her grows, the more she desires to do this. It's reciprocal in nature, but a wife's beauty to her husband is intimately attached to this idea, is what he's telling her. He is telling her, in essence, that 
your loveliness to him will not be all the ways that you can keep your beauty. Beauty fades. It will not be all the ways that you continue to work out and pursue all these different things to maintain just a youthful appearance. Rather, by breaking off previous relationships, by pursuing this new one with all of your heart, mind, and strength, in essence, where you are uniting with this man, he's going to simply recognize that and cultivate it and love it all the more. So what he is doing is simply now informing what this positive command is. In the backdrop of it, he's built up what is she's supposed to forsake the old relationship. Here's why. And now he builds up the positive command. So negatively, she forsakes her people and her father. Positively, look down with me in the second half of verse 11. She is to join herself fully to her husband and pay homage to him as her Lord. And again, all that means here, as far as Lord, is not that he's divine in any sense, but that he is the authority figure in the home, but also he's king. He's the king of Israel. There's an aspect that undoubtedly reflects the fact that he is the king. So in that sense, she's ultimately to submit to him as king. He's the vice regent. He is one who is representative of God himself. He wields authority as king. And so part of that is just like any other person in the land is that he's king. So you recognize he's king. But beyond that, she's still to live with reference to the fact that he is now her husband. The principle remains true, in essence, whether or not he's king, and the idea is that she is to submit herself to him, that he, he now wields an authority that he didn't before because they have joined as one flesh. What I want you to notice, again, I've been using this term all the while, but these are the only things that the psalmist actually directs her attention towards, is this new relationship she has with her husband. Throughout the remainder of the psalm, we're going to find that she continue, or that he continues, rather, to describe that there's blessing attached to this obedience, that on the, the day of the wedding, there's all sorts of pomp and circumstance. It's really a beautiful occasion. And then he also reiterates the promise given to David at the very end of it. But his singular call to the bride is this. That's it. Whereas he saw the husband, all he, all he was supposed to do was quite a lengthy list, wasn't it? But when you look at the bride, this is all she's supposed to do is focus on forsaking her past relationships and now looking to her husband and submitting him, herself to him. It's all bound up, in other words, in how well she follows her husband and shows him honor. And notice the commands given to the queen are not conditional, meaning none of them are built around the idea of how well he leads as king. None of them are built around the idea of obeying simply when she feels like it or if she likes it. The reality is that both he and her are to be showing obligation or obedience to these commands regardless of the other person reciprocating. What that means is he is to act as a good and godly man no matter what. And she is to act as a good and godly woman no matter what. That's the basis of their calling. For the two of them, that's how they conduct themselves in a beautiful marriage as the psalmist portrays it. He says, though, that as they do this, it will actually paint this ideal portrait of marriage. It will paint a thing of profound beauty. They will leave every other relationship behind for the sake of this one as they embark on something new, and it is glorious. That's the testimony of what he's given here. But notice also, I talked about this idea of one flesh throughout it so far. The reason why is all of this goes back to the creation account in Genesis 2, where Eve is created from Adam's side. This is innate knowledge that every Hebrew would have known as. When Eve was created, the narrative of creation just simply abruptly pauses. The reason for it is that Adam is actually filled with praise and, and wonder when God creates Eve. 
Now, he stares in wonder at this woman before him, and the very first words we have recorded from Scripture of a human is a love poem. I mean, think about that. The very first words you hear in Scripture from a man, from any human being, is a love poem. He's enraptured with her, and he looks upon his helper at the very, for the very first time. After everything else was created, he says, At last, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for out of man she was taken. And it is this exclamation, this wonderful poem that it's given as a reason why a man will actually leave his father and mother and now join to her in one flesh. But the reality is she takes part of that union as well. So nothing else in all of creation actually fills that gap of what he felt, that gap of lacking a helpmeet, the gap that a wife is intended to fill. A man's own family will never bring that. They will never prove a suitable helper to him. A dog will never prove to be a suitable helper. Even though he might be man's best friend, if you will, they could never be a helpmeet. Only his wife is lifted to this position of dignity. And likewise, it is only her husband which she will be joined to as one, as far as the wife is concerned. What is also significant, though, in, in the creation account is Adam named her. Adam named her. What that design or what that shows is simply is that he says she is, she is woman, literally of man or from man, meaning that she is not only by flesh his own nature, but that he has expressed an intrinsic authority over her, just like the rest of creation, in naming her. But it's not a dominion in a sense of squashing her under his thumb. It's a recognition she truly is his helpmate. She truly is one flesh with him, and yet he was created first. This is by God's design. In other words, what he's recognizing immediately is that not only is Eve a profound gift from the Lord, but that she was created with a purpose to rule and to reign with him. She was an extension of his authority and a rule over creation. And he looks at this and he marvels because he says, at last. As Israelites, again, all the people that are joining in this marriage ceremony would have recognized this. They recognized that psalmist is alluding back to the prototypical marriage of Adam and Eve and that he's instructing now the king and the queen to follow in these same footsteps. In essence, he's saying this is God's design from the very beginning And they would have known what he's alluding to here. They're about to become one flesh. The wife's duties are being highlighted. The man's duties have already been highlighted. And all of it is in light of the creation ordinance that was given back to Adam and Eve. And the idea is that he's calling her to be a helper to her husband. He's calling him to lead and to guard and to cherish his wife. And they're looking at it saying, okay, just as Eve, the mother of all women, did with her husband Adam, just as Adam, the father of all men, did with his wife, you are to conduct yourselves in the exact same manner. And what we find is that when we get to the New Testament, the same truth is reiterated. You don't have to flip there. I'm just going to simply reference them. But Titus 2 speaks about this. The Apostle Paul, he instructs older women to teach younger women to do what? To love their husbands and their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, and subject to their own husbands. Notice that, their own husbands. Why? so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Part and parcel to a duty's wife, then, he says, again, are found in this nature of their submission. But notice he says, again, to their own husbands. That's all she has to submit to. It's not that she now submits to every single man. It's that the simple reality is that as she is covenanted with this one man, that's whom her allegiance lies with. 
And the result is that the, uh, her obedience to this will either bring shame or honor to the word. But right away, the Apostle Paul identifies the same thing our, apostle, our, our psalmist does here today. Her submission and honor, again, is shown to one man above all others. And again, in, in Ephesians 5.22, Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, not everybody else, but to your own husbands, as to the Lord. Again, in 1 Peter 3, 1, he says, in the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. In reality, the concept is unanimous across the board. When a woman joins with a man in marriage, she is forsaking literally every other human relationship she has and joining with him. And it's actually a good and godly and beautiful thing. The kicker to it is all before that time, she is choosing if this man is going to be the one that she can do that with, if he is actually worthy of that role. Because for the rest of the life, or her life and his life, or until death do they part, this is what they're given as commands. This is where I believe one of the greatest temptations for a wife, though, arises, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, the temptation is always to lean upon somebody else's voice, to always hear other directives rather than a husband's. Now, there's an illustration that Matt Hattery has used a lot. You guys may have heard it at this point, but he talks about the idea, the best thing a husband and wife can do is to cut off the camel's nose. So if you don't know what that refers to, if you are riding on a camel, you pitch a tent, you go to sleep, what happens is a camel will stick its nose in the tent. If you don't get the nose out of the tent, so to speak, if you don't cut it off, what's going to happen is now you have a camel in your tent. And instead of you actually getting a restful night's sleep, you have a camel that you're trying to sleep with. The camel, in this illustration, beloved, is everybody else. Everybody else wants to butt in. You cut off the nose and get them out of the tent because it's your marriage. It's your household, especially as husbands, that's your household. The one voice that you have to listen to, as Paul puts it, as the psalmist puts it here, women, is your husband. That's at the end of the day, that's the only one who takes that role in your life and the one that you commit yourself to when you actually engage in a marriage. But, but more than this, it's, it's a godly practice. It's a good practice. And as we see in the reflection of the psalm, he's lifted up this as a beautiful thing all throughout it, and he'll continue to do that. The reality, though, of what I'm trying to just simply say is that others will always try to gain your ear. They will always try to do that. Mom and dad will try to gain your ear. Brothers and sisters will try to gain your ear, wives. Friends, coworkers, everybody else will try to gain your ear. None of them are who you've covenanted with. None of them are the one you've promised to live and to love for the rest of your life and to honor. Now, I said this last week with husbands, and I'll say it again this week, but a marriage is always a sermon. It's a living, breathing, talking sermon. And the question is merely what kind of sermon do we want to preach or what are we actually preaching? The question again is when we're looking at the way our lives are conducted, especially as husband and wife, we're preaching something to a watching world, no matter what we think. <clears throat> For a husband, again, it reflects his leadership. For a wife, it reflects how well she is submitting to her husband. The, the reality is that she's preaching a sermon of how the church views Christ or how, in the Old Testament, how Israel viewed God. That's the sermon being preached, no matter how we stretch it. And what he's doing here is showing that it's going to be either a, a good portrait painted 
right? You're going to have a people that are in submission to the Lord. And if you remember from the minor prophets, what happened every time these guys went buck wild and rebelled is that judgment happened, right? So he's painting the picture saying, look, you can either represent this well, or you can picture a rebellious people for the other nations. She will hear his voice if she is a godly woman, as Christ's sheep hear his voice. Or she will ignore her husband's voice and illustrate a people who go their own way. That's in essence what's being represented here. Now, submission is really, really easy when you like it. I mean, I can testify to that reality in a sense where I, whenever I have had a boss in the past, I mean, picture it the same way. When I like what he gives me to do, it's very easy to go and do it. But when I don't like it or when I disagree with it, all of a sudden it becomes a very difficult thing to do. It doesn't matter. He's my boss. And I don't mean that in a sense that it's a cold relationship or I dislike the guy, but the reality is he wields that intrinsic authority and I must be able to submit myself to him. In the marriage, there's going to be times where you simply do not understand and you do not get the rationale behind it, and yet your calling is to still trust your husband and follow his lead, especially if you don't agree with it. The reason for this is that as much as the church trusts Christ's leadership by faith, sometimes you simply have to do the same thing. Recognize come judgment day, the one responsible for how the home was led is the husband. He will be the one that stands before God and has to give an account for literally everything that what happened in home. What a wife will be responsible for only is how well she followed him. That's it. If you have a godly husband whose heart and mind is focused on honoring God, even though he's not going to do so perfectly, because none of us will, it should be a relatively easy and joyful thing to do. And what I mean by that is not that all of a sudden you, you switch your mind into thinking it is something it isn't, but that you can do so with much joy and hope and faith because you know that your husband's a godly man. You know that he wants to honor Christ first and foremost, and it's not simply about him. The reality is it's a position of weakness. It is, but it's never one that Scripture treats as a thing of inferiority. It just simply is not the way it's painted. The wife is dignified as the extension of her own husband's flesh. Right? Peter talks about this when he says, Husbands, live in, with your wives in an understanding manner, lest your prayers be hindered. Right? The idea is that it's same as Ephesians 5 talks about with husbands, that he will love her as Christ loves the church, but he will love her as his own flesh. In other words, he's not one who is going to rule as a tyrant or be an oaf, if you will. She's granted honor at his right hand, but in that, they go forth in recognition of their roles as a thing to be giving praise to God. And the reality is that as this happens, they actually flourish as a couple. Your love will only grow all the more for your husband as you do this. And husbands, your respect for your wife will only grow all the more as you continue to lead her as Christ loves the church. If we look at it in the extension of what we're commanded to do, right? I mean, wives, you're, you're shown, or you're supposed to give your husbands honor and follow his lead. Husbands are supposed to love their wives. These are typically the opposite of how men and women function, isn't it? It's naturally easy for a wife to show love, just as it's naturally easy for a man to show respect to those whom he respects. But that's not how Scripture commands us. It actually gives us the opposite. So the things that are naturally difficult for us to do, we're commanded to do, regardless of how the other reciprocates. And that's the point for us here. 
It's relatively simple for us to acknowledge, even though it might be difficult in practice. But the reality is that blessing and favor comes from this, is what he's now going to show in the remainder of the psalm. So notice how, as he talks about these instructions he just gave her, right? Five commands, three that are all basically saying, pay attention, and then two saying, forsake all other relationships and now honor your husband. And now what he does is just focus on the result of that obedience. Verse 12, he says, the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. Now, the point of this is to show that on the day of the wedding itself, between the king and the queen, the natural result of their union is that she's going to be blessed. People are coming from afar to bring gifts, but not only that, they're actually going to seek her favor. In other words, the the way the Hebrew actually breaks it down here is that they will seek her face. Now, that's a little bit difficult to kind of translate in how our American minds understand it, but they're coming to give her honor in order to be able to receive honor and wisdom. That's the idea here. So the nation of Tyre is an exceedingly wealthy place. It's a central hub of trading throughout the land. They often supplied Israel with goods at various different points as they're in allegiance together. And so the, the, the idea here is that it's talking about that the rich people, all the who's who, if you will, all the highfalutin class are going to come to you in reality. Again, she's going to be the one that has the most influence and people of prosperity will essentially come and show obeisance or bow down to her as queen. They're going to seek her favor. They're going to do so with reverence and awe because she is now in this position. All he's doing is showing that they're going to come with respect and admiration. But the reason they do so is because she's now lifted up to this position as queen. In other words, her husband is the one who is king. He's the one that inherits the Davidic promises. And immediately she's elevated to his right hand. And so she's immediately given honor and shown respect and dignity because of the nation's coming to give that to her. The principle being shown to us, though, is that as she does this, or as she continues to to yield to him, that this will happen all the more. This is simply the prototype or the first reaction or first fruits, if you will, of what happens on the wedding day. So as she relates to her husband, the reality is that she will experience all the more blessing and favor in the land. You think of evil queens in the Old Testament. You have Ahab and, um, gosh, Jezebel, thank you. My mind was going blank. What happens with Jezebel? I mean, does, does anybody like her? No, everybody reads that and they're like, good, she got eaten by the dogs just like she deserved. But the reality is, as we're looking at it, uh, the good queens are ones you don't really hear a ton about, but the evil queens stick out in your mind simply because they are ones who are going around, they're killing the prophets, they're inciting their husbands to evil. I mean, Ahab kills a guy so that way he can just simply take his vineyard. But what we find here is a reflection of something that's beautiful where just in a, in a quietness, in a way of res- reservation, she is dignifying the king. The idea is that as she continues to honor her vows and be the king's helper, she's only going to gain more and more honor in the sight of the people and even in the king. Now, if she honors the words of the psalmist and she forsakes all past relationships, she's going to find honor again among the people. The reason, though, is not because she has simply married well. I want you to hear that. It's not simply because she married well. It's because she is showing her own shrewdness, her own dignity, and continuing to build up his kingdom, if you will. So they're already already taking note. They're already saying, okay, we want to come to this wedding, but we want to come because this is actually a beautiful occasion. For one, the institution of marriage is a good and godly thing, but for two, we've actually seen already this is a thing of much beauty because they relate to each other well. 
If he obeys his duties as king, if she obeys her duties as queen, the blessing and favor of the Lord, in other words, is going to be seen upon them very, very clearly by all the people. And yet the inverse of this is also true, that if she fails to honor her husband or if he fails to honor his role as king, the marriage will suffer, not only as a result of that, but she won't gain respect and admiration of her peers and neither will he. They'll be regarded, in other words, as a wicked queen and king. What we can learn from this is relatively simple, and it's perhaps most painfully recorded for us in the book of Proverbs, but think of this in light of something like Proverbs 14.1. It states, a wise woman builds her house, but the foolish woman tears it down by her own hands. Again, in Proverbs 12.4, Solomon writes, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, right? She is the very crowning glory of his reign, but she who shames him is like a rottenness in his bones, Or if you look at others that talk about speech, I mean, remember with the husband, we talked about how his words were to be gracious. It's the same with her. Think of Proverbs 19.1. A contentious wife is like a constant dripping of water. Everybody hates that one, right? Proverbs 21.9 and 19, it's better to live in a desert or the corner of a roof than with a contentious or quarrelsome wife. The idea is that she has every potential to either build things up or to tear them down, just as he does. The wife whose heart and mind are focused on building up her household under the direction of her husband, in other words, are going to be the ones that portray a beautiful and godly marriage. They're going to show it not only to others, and they're going to earn their favor, but more importantly, they will actually curry the favor of God. He will bless them, in other words, in their obedience. Again, this is the ideal portrait of marital bliss. And the first aspect of it is all how she relates to him as king. It's all how she relates to him and submits to him. The queen-to-be has already made it her delight, though, to submit to him as this man or as this ruler. And we can see this as we just continue to look throughout the rest of the psalm here because they portray this not as a regretful thing, but a beautiful day. Everybody's looking forward to it, in other words. So verse 13, if you would look at me with this one or look down with me, not at me, he says, the king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. Now, again, he shifts back to the day at hand, which is the wedding. But notice he speaks of her appearance. Now, from a first reading, you might think he's talking about her inward qualities. But when he refers to her being all glorious within, the word for within is just a Hebrew term for some being in a building. So what he's actually talking about is the bridal chamber, if you will. So within the bridal chamber, she is all glorious within it, meaning she just simply has a lovely appearance. She's bedecked with gold and inlaid with it for that day. As she prepares for the wedding ceremony, he further says that there's treasures around her, if you will, and she's even clothed in extravagance. But if you remember from last week when we saw with the king, right, it was more than just his mere external appearance. The same idea is being portrayed here. When we looked at the descriptions given to the king, remember, he was a man that was ultimately after God's own heart, if you would. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. I mean, there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. He loved righteousness, and he hated wickedness. And so what we would be able to simply infer from that is that part of that would be he, that he loves a woman who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Now, if you remember, the book of Proverbs is something that was given to the young men who were about to be king. The idea is that as they heeded its instruction, they would be equipped to be a wise king. Now, in part of that, it would be how you pick a wife. Think about it. First and foremost, what he would have looked for if he were a godly man would be a woman who feared the Lord. At the base level, that's it. 
So when we look at the qualities of what makes a God-fearing woman or a woman who fears the Lord, they encapsulate much of what we've already seen in respect to her being able to leave her family and then cleave to her husband. But there are particular characteristics that the book of Proverbs gives us. We've already seen a couple of them in the negative sense. But now here we flip to Proverbs 31, and I want you to see it in the positive sense. So keep your finger in the psalm and just briefly turn with me to Proverbs 31. What I'm going to do here is just we're going to go through it relatively quickly and highlight principles. So starting in verse 10, he starts to give a description of a worthy woman. And this is, again, a king speaking to his son. Notice how he starts here. He frames these things in light of a question in verse 10. He says, a wife of noble character, who can find? She is far more precious than rubies. The point he's making here is not that this is an impossible thing, but rather that her, her being, her quality, her loveliness as a godly woman far surpasses any earthly treasure. He says, this is not something impossible for you, son, but you ought to make it every bit of your focus to find a woman who is worthy, one who is of noble character, and pursue her. Pursue her, right? All throughout Proverbs, he speaks of the harlot or the unwise woman. He says, flee from her. But now you see in Proverbs 31, he says, here's a woman that you ought to pursue, right? It's easy to find a woman of ignoble character or a beautiful woman on the surface who is ugly within. She, in other words, this noble woman is to be counted as a treasure. And that's what he's saying. She's a treasure far more valuable than anything else on earth. But then notice what she looks like. In verse 11, he says, the heart of her husband trusts in her and he lacks nothing of value. Why? Because she brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. And what he means by this is relatively simple. The the noble woman is one who instinctively seeks to be uh, giving him good. She is instinctively seeking to be his helper. She's not one who's at odds with him. He can trust her in every single aspect. Why? Because she seeks to bring him good. She's faithful. She's a continual source of blessing. Verses 13 through 19 then all speak about this reality fleshed out and how she's industrious, but again, for the sake of the home, not just merely for herself or even for the sake of the husband, but for the whole home. She doesn't shrink back when hard work must be done, but she rolls up her sleeves for the purpose of building it up, verses 13 through 14. Verse 15, she rises early to provide for those who are under her care. Verse 16, she conducts business with wisdom and she desires to cultivate even more. So there's a return, right? Verse 17 through 19, though her labor is hard, she harnesses her strength all throughout the day and even long into the night, again, for the sake of building up her home. Verse 20, she is even compassionate to the poor and needy in the land. Verses 20 through 21, she tends to the needs of her own household, but she does so with elegance and poise, if you will. She's clothed with fine linen and purple, and these are just things that you wouldn't ordinarily have in this day. Verse 23, she builds a good reputation for her husband. And then see in verse 25, he says, this noble woman is one who can laugh. Well, the reason behind it is he's saying she can essentially laugh at the face of adversity because she's already long prepared for the days at hand. She has all these things built up, and so the hardship, when it comes, she just simply mocks it. Verse 26, he says she is well acquainted, in other words, with wisdom, and then instructs her household in um, wisdom and faithfulness. The point of that is to simply say that she is one who also knows the word of God. Much like the husband looked at the word of God like the compass directing the home, the wife looks at the word of God as a means by which she can now direct whatever sphere of influence she has within the home. 
She conducts herself, in other words, in submission to the word of God because she knows that it is good and true and right in every aspect of it. And so it's not just the husband who is to be a man of the word. A wife is to be a woman of the word. She is to be given to deep study of the things of God. Otherwise, how would she know what is wise and good? Verses 27 through 29, again, we find a summary statement of everything that's been said thus far. She works hard for the sake of her home. And what do her husband and children do? They rise up and call her blessed. In all of it, they recognize that she is truly the treasure that she is because she is faithful, she is industrious, she does everything she can for the sake of loving that home. And they look at her and see her, again, as far more precious than rubies. They see her as a wise woman. Then he says in the last two verses here, and this is young men that pay special attention to this, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. The woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. He says, give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her at the gates. Now, the implications of this are are many, but I want you to notice how it just paints a radically simple reality when we get down to the end of it and what a, a young man should be looking for in a wife or what a husband should be looking to cultivate in his wife is that she is to be a woman who fears the Lord. First and foremost, that's it. The conviction of that will inform the rest of her life. In other words, what he's saying is that beauty is skin deep, charm is skin deep, all that will go away. I mean, the reality, if you recognize who I I mean, just who I am even, we all get fatter, uglier, and older, right? I mean, I have. It's just the reality of what happens with age. That's the point here. It's like, look, looks are going to fade. Even smooth speech will fade. What will last and what will be precious in the sight of you in your old age is a woman who fears the Lord. That's what he's instructing his king or his son in. He's saying, look, as you're looking to build your kingdom and honor the Lord with it, look for a woman who honors the Lord. That's it. At the the base level of it, he's saying, look for a woman who will be your true helpmeet one who will submit herself to you, but one who will follow you as you follow the Lord. We have it so backwards in our world, don't we? I mean, what our culture values is almost the exact opposite of these things. We look at it and we see that our culture diminishes the value and the important work of a wife and mother. Right? If, if God forbid you're one who stays home, The reality, though, is that the work of a noble wife's hands, whether or not she stays home, is what will testify of her beauty. It will testify and praise her in the gates. And the idea is that it's well beyond just the household that people see her her worth and her dignity and her poise. The people in the gates, that's the town gate of uh, of all the people gathering, will see her and they'll praise her. And it won't be a thing of saying, what an ugly marriage. They'll look at it and be like, what a beautiful marriage. You know, young men will see it and be like, that's exactly what I desire. Old men will look at it and say, I remember the days. My, my wife has long died, but what precious days were those when my wife, who was more precious to me as rubies, is now reflected in the godly character of a younger generation. All it testifies to is that a desirable wife is not found simply by looking at beauty. This is perhaps probably the hardest thing I think many can even wrap their minds around, especially when you're young. It's not about the looks. It's not about that. What it's about is godliness and the fear of the Lord. 
Again, I, I mentioned it earlier, all of us will continue to degrade and we will get wider and shorter and everything else that happens with age and time. Gravity will have its effect. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And a woman who fears the Lord will look for a man who fears the Lord. That's what's going to cultivate a godly and beautiful marriage. The reason for this is simple, and that's just because the internal qualities of those people will testify of the goodness of God in his word, and the internal quality of a godly woman will become all the more lovely to him as time goes on. That's just how it works. Beloved, we have to get this through our minds. Beauty and glory, in an objective sense, is a reflection not simply of the external, but of the internal. It's a reflection of how one fears the Lord. We live in a broken and sinful world, and all of those things are going to go away. And so the question is, what are we going to place as a primary importance? But notice, this is why these people have come to celebrate. They don't look at it and just say, this is such a beautiful wedding. They look at it, and they're able to see that the king and the queen, both together are lovely, godly people, and the internal beauty of their hearts far out or vastly outpaces the external beauty of the celebration. And again, this is an affluent celebration. There's gold everywhere. There's treasures everywhere. She looks beautiful. He looks handsome. Everything looks great. But all they're looking at is saying, this is not a formality they're entering into. This is not a strategic alliance they're entering into. This is a beautiful representation of what marriage was designed to be from the very beginning of time itself. And what a lovely day we now join in as participants as a covenant before God and us. Now look with me at verses 14 through 15, and we're going to see just this reality play out a little bit more here. This is the wedding procession, if you will. It says that she will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, that's her bride's bridal party, if you will. Her companions will follow her, and they'll be brought to you. That's the king. They'll be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. Again, all of this goes back to verse 1 and what the psalmist was simply bubbling up to speak of, what he calls a, a worthy theme or a good theme, and that's the beauty and goodness of marriage, but especially the beauty and goodness of this marriage. The people all rightly recognize that the institution of marriage, for one, is an excellent thing. They all see it as a good and beautiful thing, worthy of much celebration, and in every single way, it illustrates how far our culture has forsaken these things, hasn't it? But more than this, the people recognize that this virtuous wife and this virtuous king are ultimately going to be a people of blessing to them. They are a gift from the Lord. Ultimately, they're celebrating the fact that this couple will be a blessing that pours out on everybody else. He will function well as a king. She will function well as a queen. And because of the prominence of their roles, they will just simply pour out of a cup that's already overflowing, if that makes sense. Again, think in light of wicked kings and queens. What we saw is that they were a cursing to the people. But a righteous king, a righteous queen, as they advance God's kingdom, as they advance God's kingdom for the sake of goodness and virtue and they cultivate these things, the people will experience nothing but benefit. The nation will be led in pure worship of God. Justice will be accomplished. The land itself will actually yield produce just like it's supposed to. I mean, that's the Deuteronomic blessings of God, curses, sorry. In every single way, when you see a righteous king and queen on the throne, what he's simply saying is that the land of Israel will flourish. It's an evidence of God's own blessing. When you find a marriage that functions as it should then, in our own day and age, the natural result is that it too will pour forth blessing on people. 
The reason for this is ultimately rather simple. A husband and wife who have made it their duty to honor God, to honor Christ, and ones who have made it their delight to honor their God-given roles will produce something of intrinsic value and worth. But that value and worth will never be contained to just their own home. Picture it again like this cup that overflows. When you have a righteous man who conducts himself in honesty and integrity and seeks to uphold justice and the, the word of God, what happens is that he's not merely a man who seeks to do that in private. It's not simply the confines of his home. In every relationship, he looks to do that. When you have a wife who was mastered by the same convictions, the same thing is going to happen. She's going to embody wisdom. She's going to embody godliness and graciousness and industriousness, but for the sake of others. That's when we get down to the brass tacks of it, if you will, the duties of a man and wife in marriage always extend to other people. They're primarily for their home, but they will always bleed over into their other relationships because it's designed to do that. It's designed to testify of this greater reality at play, again, where we see Christ even extend that to his people, right? If you look at the reflection of a, a husband and wife within a marriage as it relates to the gospel, what it's designed to do is continually uplift the gospel and uplift sacrifice and uplift love, ultimately. When he speaks to this at the very end of this, we get a kind of a glimpse here. He gives a royal benediction in the last two verses, but we get a pure picture of what this marriage is actually designed to do for the Israelites here. Notice he says in verse 16, In the place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. Again, this is given in light of the Davidic promises. They are a continuation of what we learned last week, where in 6 and 7, Christ is foreshadowed, but he's testifying of that reality that their line will never die. He's testifying to this greater reality. That's what this fruitful marriage is designed to do here. Their union is sovereignly designed by God to not only portray the beauty and institution of marriage as a creation ordinance and as a good and worthy, noble theme, but ultimately to a line that would never die, which is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now look at the final verse, and we see that this is reflected even more. He says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, and therefore the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Again, in one sense, this testifies of this earthly couple. And what I mean by that is that the people will recognize that they will be ones through whom the Davidic promise is realized. To put that even more clearly, what that means is they are ones that Christ would come from, and the beauty of their marriage, and the beauty of their lineage, and the beauty of all their marriages, and future procreation that happens, will testify of God's goodness in bringing about his son because they were the very people he worked through to do this. In other words, God used ordinary means, and the people will praise him for those ordinary means. Secondly, though, it testifies in a greater sense that these words are prophetic. They portray the bliss of Christ in, and his bride that will happen when it's realized in full the very last day. And what I mean by that simply is that as we die or as we come to the very end of all days when the earth is burned in fire and the people are united with Christ as king, Revelation 19 portrays this as this great wedding day. And in a sense, what we can do is look at this passage and see this reality at play because the people will be nothing but sheer bliss and joy. 
And the reason for that is that Christ's bride, his church, will be spotless and blameless and presented with pure radiance and joy before him, and he will also have the fullness of joy. Think of that. That's mind-blowing in a sense. That's what marriage is designed to picture. On the side of the wife, that's what it's designed to represent, is this day when we are united with Christ once more for all eternity, and there's this purity and this innocence and this loveliness once more to God's people where sin and Satan and death are defeated forevermore. When we get our minds around that reality, in our marriages, it's designed to reflect that. You know, a husband reflects Christ, but a wife reflects the bride to Christ. And so if we look at that in terms of our role, all of this is designed to testify the goodness and beauty of the work that Jesus Christ has done, and yet the goodness and beauty of the day that we stand to inherit in Christ. And so the question is, why would we not want to reflect that in our marriages? As we consider everything we've heard today and even last week, what I want to simply do is take a few minutes to just draw kind of all of it together and give a series of short reflections on what the goodness and the beauty of marriage is designed to do. Well, first, it requires for you younger men and women that you choose a spouse incredibly carefully. The way that scripture portrays marriage is that it is final, meaning that it is until death do you part. It is an institution that is designed to be permanent. And so choose very wisely and carefully. When you look for a spouse, your primary view should be on how they honor or how they fear the Lord. Beauty will fade. Charm will fade. But what will not is a man or woman who is given to godliness. Secondly, our duties as husband and wives are quite simple when we boil them down to their most basic functions. When it gets complicated is when we simply reject them, ignore them, or forget about them. Again, husbands are designed to lead, And yet, as we've seen through here and other scriptures today, women are designed to follow. And then while our our world may see this as an ugly dynamic, what scripture does is simply lift this up as a good and beautiful and right thing. When both spouses commit themselves to these things, their marriage will flourish. When we forsake our duties, when we switch roles, our marriages will have the opposite effect. They will not flourish. In particular, what we've seen today is that a wife's role is to be her husband's helper. She completes him. She will either serve to build up in that completion or to tear down in that completion. She will serve as a wise woman who is mastered by the Bible's teachings, or she will prove to be an unwise woman who is mastered by the world's teachings. Well, the true pity in our age is that many are fooled into spending so much time building up the external experience, or not experience, but the external appearance rather than the internal. And what I mean by that simply is that people are looking to maintain a physique or to maintain a youthful appearance, but all that will fade, and what will come in its place will be either a person who is godly or one who is not. Imagine if just half the time was spent cultivating virtuous character as a wife rather than all the ways in which we could doll ourselves up or doll yourselves up. I'm not a woman, so I'll just... Contrary to popular opinion, I know what that is. We'll go back to the sermon now. (laughs) Your husband, ladies, carry a very high calling. Their calling is one that is very strict. It is one that bears a stricter judgment. And yet you have the potential of being able to make that an easier task or a harder task. 
Many voices will call out for your attention, but only one is the one you need to listen to. The voice of your husband is the only one that needs to stand out. Everybody else's could be drowned out. And my simple admonition to you is to live in such a way that this task he bears is not made more difficult by digging in or opposing. If he is a godly husband, again, it should be a delight. You know he leads with an awareness and that he ultimately must answer to God for his leadership. If he's an ungodly husband, the way that Peter would say it is that we aren't, again, you. I'm, I typically do this back and forth while I'll switch between you and we because it's often easier of a blow. And I recognize these are hard sermons. Sorry. You, women, as you do this, if he's an ungodly man, the way picture would, or Peter would portray it is that you are to win him over without a word by the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And the reason for this is it's precious in the sight of the Lord. Thirdly, this is the ideal portrait of marital bliss. It's the ideal portrait. And what I want to simply touch on very, very briefly is that we don't live in a perfect world. We live in a world that is marred and broken by sin. And the, mar, or the reality is that that will even come into a beautiful institution like marriage. Your husband will sin. Your wife will sin. Some of you will be in relationships that are filled with much regret and hopelessness. And yet the reality is that no matter what, if you honor the Lord in your designed function, it will be a thing of much beauty and praise. For God will see it and God will reward you. He will not forget it on the last day. And in some cases, it might be that you share in part with his afflictions as you give yourself up day after day to a woman or a man who will reject you, much like Israel rejected Christ when he came. And finally, we are to look at all these things as a picture of the gospel. In today's sermon, we find the bride portrayed in all her splendor, and this is where I can appropriately say we. We are, in essence, portrayed as Christ's bride, in that our calling is much the same as a wife's would be in a marriage. We are to leave our old life behind, utterly forsake it, We are to cling instead to Christ and submit ourselves to his lordship. We are to follow him. And then one day we will be joined utterly, perfectly, and in a completely holy way to Christ without spot or without wrinkle on the day of the great wedding. Forever. Forever. Amen, brother. Now, our duties as husbands and wives, though, will reflect this reality, and we will either do so well or we will do so poorly. But nonetheless, we will reflect it. We will paint a portrait to a watching world of God's unfailing love towards his people. And so the question is, will we paint a beautiful portrait as it is designed and showcased in scripture, or will we paint a picture that is rather ugly? It may be said of us that we paint this picture well. May we pray. Father, again, I thank you that we are able to come here today and to hear your word. I pray now that as we finish this sermon, as we wrap up Psalm 45, that you would indeed fill us with much hope, not only in the resurrection and the day we are joined with Christ, but that even in our earthly marriages, this is a depiction of that reality. There is always hope within a marriage, Father, that if we submit ourselves to Scripture and follow its cues, that things may work well, just in a very practical uh, way of speaking and wisdom, but also that as things work in a very rather hard way, that you have promised to give us much care and affection, that you've promised to love us through it, 
and that nonetheless it is a portrait of beauty, of an undying love. And I pray, Father, that we would reflect that when things are hard as well as when they are easy. They would not lose sight of the great reality we await in which we are joined to Christ, but that we would paint this portrait well and not give up on painting it well. I pray for husbands that you would allow them to lead well and for wives that you would allow them to follow well. And while our culture continues to degrade marriage and everything that is really sacred, that we would be a people who stand and lift up the institution of marriage, not only in its proper way, but as a thing of much beauty and delight. We praise you that you have given us such a worthy thing as this, but we ultimately praise you that you have given us Christ, that you have forgiven us as sinners and you have called us to be a holy people, but that you have guaranteed that we will see our heavenly inheritance through his sacrifice, through his obedience, and through your will. May it be said that we reflect the people who truly believe this with all of our hearts. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.